Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chaldean Priest Show. I have really been anticipating this episode that I was going to upload it a few days ago, but I had to restrain myself. All right, why don't we get started? Honestly, how awesome is it that the Vicar of Christ, the successor of Peter, visited Iraq for the first time? Pope Francis was walking around the streets of Baghdad, the ancient city of Ur, visited the northern villages of Iraq, went to Adbil, celebrated a mass according to the Chaldean Rite. You guys have no idea how big this is. When a pope celebrates mass, it is always according to the rite of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the Latin rite. But he celebrated Mass in the Chaldean Liturgy, which is unbelievably historic, and it's something very honorable for all of us Chaldeans. And it's something that's, I think, I truly think this was the biggest highlight of his pontificate. Pope Francis did well by going to Iraq, especially in the circumstances that he went in. Because look, I went to Iraq a few years ago, and I'll tell you this right now, there is never a good time to go to Iraq. You know, there's never a good time. It's always going to be bad. It's always going to be a little shifty. It's always, there's, there's always going to be a risk involved. But nevertheless, missiles were being fired days before he went. There were bombings at the Erbil airport a week, I think, before he went, but he was still persistent in going. And I think he did a marvelous job when he was there with meeting with uh, different religions there, the Prime Minister of Iraq, the President of Kurdistan, and many other delegates in the government and in the ecclesial office. And really, that was something really great to see, especially for a country like Iraq, who has been through so much persecution and uh, just a lot of hostility throughout the years. So we pray constantly for the country of Iraq and also for Pope Francis and his pontificate. So today I'm going to be going through another Basilica hymn, and this one is pretty interesting. It has to do with some topics on vanity, it has to do with despair, and it also has to do with our unworthiness before God. So why don't we get started? It begins like this. It says, the whole span of my life disperses and vanishes vainly in the confusion of the vanities of the world. So the author here, he's really highlighting what vanity does to someone and what vainglory, how much it takes over someone's life. And what's vanity? So vanity is an act on someone's end to receive a certain kind of glory. So you might have heard of vanity being someone that is overly obsessed with the way they look, with the way they present themselves in front of people, with the way people portray them on the outside. And what the author here is saying is how his entire span of his life dispersed because of his vanities of the world. 
So we need to be very careful of how much we allow the things of this world to consume us. Because if someone is overly obsessed with the way they look in front of their friends or before going out or the way they look in front of certain you know, boss at work, or whether it's in front of a certain spouse or a certain group of friends. Because I know I've met people that put on a completely different face when they're in front of a certain group of people, and you see a different personality in front of another group of people. And this is something that could be really problematic, because I don't think it's a coincidence that this author said that his entire life was a confusion and completely dispersed because of this sort of addiction to vanity. Because it can be something that creeps up and until it's too late, we will see our entire lives revolved around trying to receive compliments from other people because of things we did or trying to receive this glory that really is not owed to us, right? Glory is only for God. We shouldn't do things and we shouldn't portray ourselves in such a way just to receive glory from people because that glory, I mean, what are we going to do with that glory? What, we're going to be satisfied for a few minutes or maybe a day or maybe a week or maybe a month, but, and then what? You know, so looking at both of these aspects really sheds light with what our priorities should be. And our priorities, look, things in this world will always get better. There will always be things that are much better than the things before. For example, if it's a new car, there's always going to be a newer car. If it's a new house, there's always going to be a bigger house after that. So pulling ourselves away from this mentality especially the mentality that this world gives us, and especially if you're living in a very small community or if you're part of a family that's very tight-knit and very small, this could be a big temptation because you know exactly who to target when it comes to vanity. So it's not a sinful thing to have nice things. It's not a sinful thing to want to look presentable to people, but don't let that be everything about you because, again, that will take over a a big span of your life that is not worth taking over. And the author goes on to explain uh, what that entails. So he continues and says, And because I have not even desired for a single hour to prepare myself for tackling work in the spiritual vineyard, I do not expect to receive the wage prepared for the just. And this is, a, I think, a direct allusion to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And he's talking, and remember, this follows up right after his premise on vanity. And he says, I have not even desired for a single hour, not desiring to work in the vineyard of God and work in the spiritual vineyard and preparing ourselves to tackle the work of, you know, I guess you could call it the spiritual warfare, not even having the desire of that is extremely problematic because that means there's something that is replacing that desire to work in God's vineyard. And for him, that replacement is vanity. Vanity could suck out this desire to want to do the good and to want to work in God's vineyard. And this is this should be something on top of our priority list, of, especially now during Lent, of making sure we don't allow the things of this world to consume us. Because it's one thing, working in God's vineyard, even though you don't desire it, you still do it. 
that's a great thing. But if you don't even desire to do it, and which causes you not to do it, that could lead someone into a dark alley of despair where there is basically no hope. And maybe that hope is only light on the vanities of this world. And I've, uh, to be honest with you, my priesthood, I've seen people go through this where they've become so blind because of the things of this world that has caused them to basically suck out their energy to do anything else because they're so focused on maybe wanting to look good in front of people, maybe trying to get this promotion, maybe doing things just for the power or for the glory of man or for the money or whatever it may be. You could fill in the blank on that. But despair is something that I see is happening and is becoming uh, more of a common thing in this world. And this should be something we're battling against because the author here mentions that I do not expect to receive the wage prepared for the just. He is in so much despair that he doesn't even seek or he doesn't even expect for the wage of the just, the just people who gave time to work in God's vineyard. And he's sort of at a standstill. But then he follows up by saying, But for the hidden wounds of my sins, I ask forgiveness from you, unworthy though I am. So then he takes this despair and he begins to highlight the, the main and probably the most important thing right now. And those are the wounds of his sins. And that's what he's asking forgiveness of. So he recognizes that he's in despair maybe because of this vanity, but also understanding that the sins that he committed caused him to have wounds. And I want to talk about this for a little, because being in a sinful state, especially sins that are habitual, they're very hard to rip ourselves away from. Like I said, especially if they're if it's a sin that's habitual. But they do cause deep wounds. For example, if someone sort of had an addiction to lying, so kept on falling into the sin of lying and took themselves out of that sin and maybe years years go by where maybe that sin does creep up, those wounds do creep up about, you know, maybe recollecting their thoughts and reflecting on how many people they may have hurt because of these certain lies that they told them or certain things just you know, coming into our imagination and, and coming into our thought process and us falling also maybe into despair because of that. But that is something that shouldn't cause us despair, especially if we have repented from it, because that's another tactic of the devil where he likes to use our past sins and basically throw them on our faces. And remember, our God is a good God. And if God by his very nature is good, then if we have repented from something, if we went to confession for this thing, God is not someone who's going to hold our sins above our heads and say, oh, look, make sure you never forget this for the rest of your life because you did this against my will and against the law of God, whatever, so on and so forth. No, God is not like that. When we repent from something, then we should make sure we leave that behind us. 
and move on and look in front of us in our lives so that we may avoid falling into any sort of despair or discomfort because of that certain sin. And what's very interesting is this last line here that I read, unworthy though I am, he recognizes his unworthiness. And it's good to look at ourselves as being unworthy in front of God because we are, right? Because there is, we are in a debt that's irrepayable to Christ for his sacrifice on the cross. So then the author goes on and he says, and because of this, before I stand, before your frightful judgment seat and am found guilty of my crimes by your just judgment. Say the word, and I will be healed by your mercies. O lover of mankind, glory to you. That second part is, again, another direct allusion to the scriptures where Jesus heals a centurion's servant. And the centurion said, I am not worthy for you to enter under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. But backtracking, he recognizes, this author recognizes that he will stand in front of God before the judgment seat. And he's already presuming that he's going to be found guilty of the crimes of his just judgment. So his recognition of being guilty for the sins that he committed is the first step to having this reversion, so to speak, of our hearts to turn back towards God and not to give ourselves too much credit of maybe the things that we have accomplished. Because we would, and I've seen this before with people getting too comfortable with maybe the sins that they've conquered or certain habits that they've completely put off. And that's a great thing. It's a very honorable thing. It takes a lot of willpower to be able to detach yourselves from sinful, habitual things. But at the same time, with the same token, understanding that one day we will stand before God at the judgment seat and we will have to answer for the sins that we have committed and the state that our soul is in at that very moment should be something to take into consideration. And for the author, it's the very word of God that he will be healed by God's infinite mercies. And it's so beautiful. He ends with, O lover of mankind, glory to you. God is truly a lover of mankind who does not know and will never neglect his flock because he created us. So all in all, things that would cause us to fall into despair and to sort of stop giving an effort and things that would cause us to no longer recognize that we will stand before God's judgment seat should be things that are completely put off from us. And I think today for this author, it has a lot to do with vanity. And even Augustine says that he is better advised who acknowledges that even the love of praise is sinful. Wanting constant praise or constantly looking for praise or people to praise you or 
whatever it may be, that is not something fruitful. And Augustine even goes to the extent of saying that is something that is sinful, desiring praise from people. If people praise you, fine, let them do it on their own. But don't expect it from people and don't order the way you do things in your life for the mere praise of human beings because you're not going to stand in front of your boss at the end of your life. You're not going to stand in front of your parents at the end of your life. You're not going to stand in front of whatever, a friend at the end of your life. You're going to stand in front of God, do things for the sake of their own good and for, for the sake of you showing God that you're making an effort, right? Vanity also causes us to no longer be genuine to ourselves in the way God made us, who created us in his image and likeness. It makes us to be something that we're not. So we don't, and I guess, quote unquote, that the modern term for that is being fake, quote unquote. But with that being said, we want to be genuine to ourselves, especially in front of God, because anything outside of that will only cause trouble and more heartache in our lives. And just like the author said, and I'll keep going back to this and I'll end with this right now, is that, remember the first line, the whole span of my life disperses and vanishes vainly. The entire span of his life had to do with vanity and had to do with him not being truthful to himself and who he is, but rather being someone that he's not. Be yourself. Be who God created you to be. And that will show the best version of ourselves that we can be. Because, for example, me, I'm Father Daniel. I only know how to be Father Daniel. And if I try to be someone who I'm not, then it just becomes more and more problematic. So with that being said, let's get to the second segment, The Lion's Den. Actor Jesse Ferguson, also known as a sitcom star of the modern family and one of the judges and So You Think You Can Dance and other things that he has participated in was recently on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And he said this, that he's going to be raising his son with his partner, Justin Makita, gay until he decides to be straight, end quote. So he has already premeditatively decided to raise this poor child gay until that child decides to be straight. This is extremely disturbing. And I really don't know where to start with this, but I just want to say one thing that if we think this has nothing to do with us, we're wrong. This sort of absurdity and injustice and child harassment does have everything to do with us because this is the direction society is going. And if this is the direction society is going, 
then it's taking us with it. That's why we need to stay strong in the doctrines of the church, in the teachings of the magisterium, and in the very natural law. So that we too are not victims of this absurdity. And I can see this getting worse and worse as time goes. I remember, I think it was last year or the year before that, that a law was being attempted to pass to force priests to break the seal of confession if someone were to confess a molestation act or whatever it may be. It got pretty close to passing, but thank God it fell through. But I don't see them stopping. Their assault against the church and their assault against humanity and their assault against the natural law. So be awake and be vigilant and be a lover of truth. Because truth is something that maybe does come with certain consequences, but it it is the very thing that is the most rewarding. So that's my episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any questions, you know where to find me. But until then, see you next time.